0: All joy and peace as you trust in Him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Spirit of God. These are powerful words, and the neat thing about verse 13, in reality, that really concludes the book of Romans. After verse 13, Paul shares with us personal things that are on his mind. But with regard to the theological truths that he wants to convey, he's pretty much done that, and he's ended in verse 13 with one of his many doxologies or blessings or statements of praise. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him. That would seem to be the end of the letter. But Paul has other things he wants to share. When you get down to chapter 15, looking at verse 33, he then has another benediction you might say the god of peace be with you all amen you would think he was done there but no he shares a little bit more and then as you get down to verse 20 of chapter 16 he says the god of peace will soon crush the evil one under your feet The grace of our Lord Yeshua be with you. And you would think he was done there, but no, he's not. Some other thoughts comes into his mind. And then when you get down to verse 25, he says, Now to him who is able to establish you, to the only, verse 27, the only wise God, be glory forever through Yeshua, our Messiah. Amen. It's almost as if there aren't enough pages, there isn't enough ink in order to say all of these statements of blessings that he wants to say. But this first benediction, we might say, in verse 13, comes at the end of this section of practical truths that he is bringing to bear with regard to the readers, the congregation at Rome. And this section of what he is talking about has to do with how we relate one another how we as believers interact and are we ones who are creating unity in our midst in fact this is the largest section of this practical area that Paul is writing is devoted to unity now take a look at how he begins this section in verse 3 He tells us, for even Messiah did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. Now, you don't have to turn there, but he's quoting from Psalm 69. You can if you would like, but Psalm 69 is a most important messianic passage in the scriptures. 36 verses, seven of those verses are quoted in the Brit Tadashah in the Hebrew scriptures with with reference to to the Messiah of Israel, this being one of them. And what's interesting, when you go through Psalm 69, as the psalmist speaks about what the Messiah endured, he tells us here that he endured the insults of those who insulted him. He tells us in Psalm 69 that he bore the grief that the enemies of him had caused. Later, he says, he endured the attacks that were levied against him by the rulers in Israel. He speaks of those that he had endured, those who had made sport, is the phrase that is used by the psalmist, that made sport of him. You can imagine those that were cheering at Him or jeering at Him when He was on the cross. Saying, if you truly are the Son of God, then come down from the cross. Psalm 69 refers to all of these kinds of things that He had endured from His enemies, from the rulers that had uh, opposed Him. Psalm 69 even makes reference to His own brothers who had opposed Him. And we read about that in John's Gospel... In in chapter 8, when Yeshua chapter 7 is headed to the Feast of Tabernacles, headed to Jerusalem, his own brothers did not believe in him and began to speak ill of him. Even on another occasion, as I think about this, I think it's in Mark chapter 3, where we are told that there were those that had thought that Messiah was insane and said he was beside himself. We know that some of the insults he had endured were insults with regard to his origins. We know who his father, who his mother is. We don't know who his father is. And so they were making a veiled statement about his apparent illegitimacy. These were the kinds of insults, as it were, that he had endured. What's amazing is that Paul makes reference to the example of Messiah in enduring these kinds of heinous insults. But what is he really talking about? He's not drawing our attention to the insults Messiah endured simply for us to reflect on what Messiah endured. But rather he says, therefore bear with one another. I think it's qu- quite significant that he points out all of these Ill things that Messiah endured from his enemies. And he's using that as an example to say, we are to endure the things of each other. And we are brothers and sisters in the Lord. So there's a very strong statement Paul is making. Take a look again. He says, each of us should please his neighbor. Even Messiah did not please himself, but he endured these insults. And then he says, so may the God who gives endurance and encouragement, verse 5, give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Messiah in enduring each other. So it's an amazing thing to think that he is comparing the insults Messiah endured to the insults you and I endure from each other and saying, as Messiah endured them, so ought we to endure them as well, that we might create unity in the body. And unity among one another he tells us that we are to do this if you look at verse six so that with one heart and mouth we may glorify God the Father of our Lord Yeshua the Messiah and so the ultimate reason here is not so that we would get along and that things would run smoothly but so that God would get all the glory As individuals see how we endure each other, how we work together, how we move forward in the spirit of love and compassion and grace. And as individuals look in on what it is we are doing and what is going on in our midst, they would see the Lord and he would be glorified. It's much like Yeshua says on the Sermon on the Mount, where he says that we are to let our light so shine before others that they might see our good deeds and glorify our Father who is in heaven. So our goal is therefore to glorify him. Now, how do we do this? If you look at verse 4, he tells us everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that we might have this kind of hope manifested in our midst. What Paul is saying is not that when David wrote, or when Moses wrote, he had us in mind and was writing for us. Rather, what he means is that what is written is for everyone's instruction throughout all the ages, including the readers at Rome as well. So why is God's Word so instructive? Well, first of all, it is His Word. In Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.16, which tells us all Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is inspired of God. Peter tells us that the prophets who wrote were moved, carried along is the expression by the very Spirit of God. And that when they wrote, they wrote the things that the Spirit of God had empowered them and led them and guided them to write. Therefore, the Scripture is preeminent in our instruction because it is God's Word and it comes from Him. The mystery of the Word of God is that while it is God's Word, it is also reflecting the human characteristics of the authors who wrote them. That's the miracle of the Word of God. When we look through the Scriptures written by Moses, they're very different than the Scripture that's written by David. When we look at the scriptures written by David, very different than Isaiah. Very different from those that write in the Brit HaDashah, the Gospel of Mark or Matthew or Paul's writings. But while there are these differences that reflect the individuality of the writers, yet at the very same time they are conveying the very truths that God wanted conveyed just as He wanted it said. Somehow, without dictating what is to be written, And yet, carrying the writers along and breathing his very life into the words that are chosen by the writers so that they write what God wanted written. And thus Paul says, it is first and foremost to the Word of God that we must go in order to bring about this unity and this oneness that he desires in our midst. Paul tells us a little bit more about this unity. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Ephesians. And in chapter 4, Paul writes about unity here as well. And in verse 3 of chapter 4, he says, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Later in verse 13, he says, Until we all, so if we go back. Uh, he tells us in verse 11, it was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Messiah may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith in the knowledge of the Son of God. So Paul here is speaking about two different kinds of unity in the body. Look at verse 3. One is the unity of the spirit. In verse 13, it is the unity of the faith. And when he speaks about the unity of the faith, he's speaking about our understanding about the faith. The things that the scriptures teach us concerning the doctrines of our faith. The teachings of our faith. That's something that we will continue to pursue because we all see through a glass darkly. We all continue to learn, and until we are in the very presence of God himself, we'll all be scrutinizing the meaning and significance of God's word in order to understand it. That is something that goes on and on, and we never really arrive at completely in this life. But on the other hand, in verse 3, he speaks of the unity of the spirit, and that's what Paul is referring to in Romans chapter 15. When he speaks of in verse 5, may the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity. We are all one in Messiah. Paul makes this clear there's one faith, one immersion or baptism, there's one Lord. And there is one body, and we are in it. We have entered into the unity with God and with one another. Our job is to maintain that unity among us. Paul tells us how by enduring each other's foibles, by enduring each other's idiosyncrasies, by enduring each other's differing personalities and perspectives on things. We continue to try to scrutinize and understand God's Word as completely as we can, but there's always going to be disagreements among the brethren. And therefore, we are to endure each other and work with each other and love each other and be compassionate toward each other there is no greater distinction that Paul ever has in mind as he's thinking about unity and oneness. When he thinks of the differences in the body that necessitate unity, Paul always is drawn to the distinction between Jews and Gentiles. And I think one of the reasons Paul is drawn to that is because he's called as a messenger, as an apostle to the Gentiles. And he says he magnifies his office. He rejoices in the calling that God had given to him to be one who would bring the good news, particularly among the non-Jewish world. And so when Paul thinks about distinctions and differences where there's a need to endure each other, he thinks of the Jewish-Gentile distinction that would exist in anybody. Remember, Paul does not know the people at Rome. He's not visited them. But Paul knows human nature. And Paul understands the conflicts that are involved when two people or more are gathered together. And he also knows of the conflicts that exist within local congregations of believers of various congregations. He's already planted and established during his first, second, and then his third journeys. So he understands this. But remember, he's never been to Rome. And now here in verse 7 when he speaks about being in unity to one another, he speaks of that need for that unity because Jews and non-Jews are going to gather together in worship and praise of the one God. That this was not meant to be just, merely exclusively a Jewish thing. And look what Paul does. He quotes from four passages in order to heighten God's intention to bring the good news to the Jewish people. But before we look at that, take take a look at this phrase where Paul says, I tell you, Messiah has become a servant of the Jews. That phrase really struck me. To think that Messiah had become a servant. And notice that Paul does not say Yeshua. He doesn't say Jesus. He doesn't say His name. He speaks of His title as the Messiah of Israel, as the King of Israel, as the Anointed One of Israel. And in the same breath, he says, He is a, or has become a servant of the Jewish people. And for what purpose, he says? That He would become on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy and for his grace. Yeshua himself tells us over and over, he came not to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. At the Shalom Fellowship, we were looking at Mark chapter 8. And it's in that chapter that Yeshua asks, Who do individuals say that I am? And they say, many say that you are one of the prophets. Many say that you are Elijah. And then Messiah says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter stands up and he says, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Yeshua says and praises Peter for that statement because he says... You didn't get that on your own. God had to have revealed that to you. My Father in heaven has revealed that to you. And then he says, the Son of Man must suffer and die and be rejected and handed over to the religious establishment of his day and thus be crucified. Peter then stands up again and he says, may it never be that cannot be so, Lord, that will never happen to you. And Messiah says to him, get behind me, Satan. For you do not have the thoughts of God in your heart. Those are powerful words. And they strike me in this context of Yeshua becoming a servant for his people that the fulfillment of the promises to the patriarchs would occur, which include, and which which Paul is focusing on, that the Gentile nations would praise God and experience His mercy. In order to do that, Messiah had to be a servant. And in serving, He had to suffer and die. Now, from Peter's perspective, and from most people's perspective, that is not what the Messiah of Israel would do. The Messiah of Israel would come and bring deliverance. But the idea that he would do that by dying, and notice what Yeshua says, I must suffer. His death would have to be a violent death. He couldn't just die in his sleep. He couldn't just die in a quick action that would bring about his demise. Yeshua said, I must suffer. And this was not optional for him. For this is what God had commanded in his word. And as a servant, he would willingly submit to that suffering in order that the promises would be fulfilled, redemption would come to his people, and to the Gentiles, and the ends of the earth. Peter meant well, didn't he? How often do we say, we're in trouble, we can't handle this, and we say, you know, it's going to be all right. When in fact, it's not. Notice what Yeshua says to Peter. You do not have the thoughts of God in mind. He thought he did. He thought his encouraging words that don't think anything like that would happen to you. I will die for you. I'll come and defend you. You don't have the thoughts of God in mind because God's will and purpose for me is to suffer and to die and to do so violently. Indeed, I must experience that as a servant. Earlier. In John's account, in John chapter 6, Yeshua says to the people, unless you drink the blood of the Son of Man and eat his flesh, you have no part with me. And his disciples, over those hard words, meaning that Yeshua must be everything in our lives, because of those hard words, many of his disciples would not follow him anymore. He says to his own disciples, will you, or the twelve, will you leave me also? But before he says that, he says these interesting words. He says, what if you were to see the Son of Man ascend back into heaven? Yeshua's statements in John chapter 6 have to do with the fact that he must come and suffer and die. And we must embrace all that he does in our behalf in order to have salvation. He tells us that in order to be ones that will embrace him, as ones who would die for us, he says, the Father must draw us to him. For otherwise, like Peter, we would say the same thing. Far be it from you that you would die in our behalf. The only reason we've come to see the significance of that is because the Father, in fact, has drawn us to him. And has opened our eyes and we see something we would not normally see, just as Peter at that time did not normally see it. And then Messiah says, What if you were to see the Son of Man ascend back into heaven? What what Yeshua is saying is, What would be the case if I had not come? What would be the case if I do not fulfill the mission for which God has called me? What if you saw the Son of Man ascend into heaven, but did not see Him go to the cross and suffer and die? What would then be the case? And of course the case would be, Redemption would not be possible for any of us. And thus it is imperative that He go. And in going, He serves. And at Shalom Fellowship, I shared why this is so significant. Why it is so essential that He must die. And there are really two reasons why He must die for us. He must die for us because we have been created as individuals who need love. We need to experience unconditional accepting love. That's what Paul is talking about Romans 15, where we are in unity with one another and bear each other's insults, as it were, like Messiah. Why did he bear those insults? Because we need love. We need not only to give it, but to experience it. And the problem is none of us can give the kind of love we all need. Because all of our love is ultimately conditional in some regard. It also is self-serving while we need to receive a love that we can just receive all of it from. And none of us can give that kind of love except one individual. And that is God. Why? Because He embodies all of love. God is love. And therefore God does not need love. And thus can only or can fully give love. And so why does Messiah come? Because we crave love. And we need love in order to go on in our lives. And we also need to be ones who give love, but we can't give it. And therefore, we can't receive that kind of love from each other. So where can we get that love from? We have to get it from the one who is love, and that is God. But we can't get it from Him if we're not united to Him. That's how we receive it. We have to be one with Him like we are to be one with one another. We can't get it from Him by a distance. We have to be united with Him. We have to be connected with Him. We have to be in Messiah, as it were. And how do we get in Messiah? He must die for us. If He does not do that, we cannot get what we need in order to be the kind of human beings God created us to be. And thus we are without love In the world. And then we are of all people's most miserable. But because Messiah came as a servant. Because he gave his life a ransom for many. Because he can provide us with the atonement that can unite us to he who is love. We can for the first time receive the kind of love we all crave. And because of his spirit that dwells within us. We can be empowered to give the kind of love. We all need to receive from each other, at least in a small sort of way. But it is not just this personal need for love that we have. There's also a judicial need, a legal need. We stand guilty before God. And something has to remedy it. And all debt, as I was sharing Friday evening, all debt has a price. So I shared this illustration that some took off on and you know I didn't mean it to go too far but if you can imagine very something very simple if you walk into someone's home and you knock over their lamp you are in debt to whoever owns the lamp. Now only one of two things can happen either you're gonna go out and buy a new lamp in which case you have borne the debt for that lamp or the owner of the lamp is going to say, you know what, you don't have to pay for the lamp. I forgive you for breaking the lamp. But in which case, the owner bears the debt for the lamp. Either they're going to go without light in that area in which they're going to suffer, or they're going to take some money out of their own pockets and they're going to pay for the lamp. In either case, debt inc- uh, wrongdoing incurs a debt. And the debt must and always is paid. That's what forgiveness is about. When you forgive another person, you are telling the person, I will pay the debt. You do not have to pay the debt. When we do not forgive others, and we become vengeful or retaliatory, or even rejoice in the failings of the other, we're making them pay the debt. And thus, they are experiencing the suffering for their wrongdoing. Someone pays the debt for wrongdoing. Either the wrongdoer pays the debt because we do not let them off the hook, or we pay the debt because we do. In either case, debt paying incurs suffering and a great deal of agony. Inside we churn for what we've just experienced and thus we forgive the individual but it doesn't take away necessarily the pain that we experience. And just as Messiah went to the cross, He provided forgiveness for us. Why? Because He bore our debt and He suffered our debt. He paid for it that we do not have to pay for it ourselves he became a servant suffering as he did because we need love and without him suffering we can't be united to the god of the universe who is love and secondly we've incurred a debt by our wrongdoing and someone's going to pay for that debt and if messiah's debt paying is not applicable to your sin you will pay for that debt and it is a debt that cannot be paid off in time. And that's why Yeshua tells us it is a place of eternal separation from the one in, to whom we are indebted. But if Messiah has paid the debt for us and we've received that debt payment, then we no longer need to bear the debt for ourselves and for all of eternity. We will be forgiven and therefore united to him. So in Romans 15, Paul is telling us that we are to be one. And being one means to follow the example of Messiah who endured the insults of all those individuals who had opposed him. And Paul uses that to say that we who are ones who love one another, we who are ones who are brothers and sisters in Messiah, we who are ones who are children of God together, are to learn from that example of debt paying, of owning all of that stuff for one another, that we would glorify God. Remember, that's the goal, that God would be glorified because people see individuals who truly love one another and bear one another's burdens. Now, take a look one more time. He says, I tell you, Messiah has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises to the, Gentil- uh, to the patriarchs and that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. Remember, Paul tells us the Gentiles were alienated, separated from the commonwealth of Israel without any hope. Four times in this section, by the way, Paul is going to mention hope. The very thing The Gentile nations were alienated from. You could see it in verse 3. You could see it in verse 12. And you could see it twice in verse 13. But four times he mentions the very thing that the Gentiles were without. But because of the servanthood of Messiah, they can now experience that hope. And just notice these passages. I think this is just kind of neat, and that's why I just want to show it to you. If you look at his first quote, which is found in verse 9, he quotes from Psalm 18, verse 49. Then if you look at verse 10, he quotes from Deuteronomy, chapter 32. Rejoice, O Gentiles. Then if you look at verse 3, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, comes back to Psalm 117. And then in verse 12, he quotes the passage we quote every, every worship service Sunday when we light the candles from Isaiah chapter 11. Now, there are a couple of things I just want you to see. Number one, in rabbinic thought, the way that you argued your point from Scripture in order to have the strongest... Defense. For your particular theological perspective, you would quote from a variety of portions of Scripture. From the Hebrew perspective, there are three sections of the Hebrew Scriptures, right? The Old Testament. There's the Torah, the first five books of Moses. There's the Ketuvim, the writings of the writers, like uh, the writings, like Psalms, Proverbs, um, Song of Solomon, books of poetic books. Like that, And then you have the Nevi'im, the prophetic books, such as we have the major minor prophets, Isaiah, Hosea, and others. So these are the three major sections. By the way, in Luke chapter 24, when Yeshua is with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, he tells us that reasoning with them from the scriptures, from the, from the law, from the writings, and from the prophets, he went right through the entirety of the Hebrew scriptures to show them that he fulfilled what the prophets said about the Messiah. Now, if you want to support your argument, you would, first of all, look for a portion from the Torah, from the first five books of Moses, because that was considered the preeminent part of God's Word. All of it is God's Word. The Jewish people understood all is God's Word, but there are some parts that are more important than others. And so the most important section of the Hebrew Scriptures was the Law of Moses. The second most important part of the Hebrew Scriptures were the Prophets. And that embodied what we think of historical books. But for the sake of argument this morning, we're just looking at the major, minor prophets. And then your third reasoning uh, for arguing your point would come from the writing. So if you had a point of view and another person had a point of view and they quoted from the law and you quoted from the Psalms, well, their evidence from the law is considered stronger than your evidence from the Psalms. So it's always in your interest to make sure that you can back up your point of view by quoting from the law. If you can't find it in the law, you want to look in the prophets. Can't find it there? Well, you're relegated to the writings. But when you provide all three from the law, the prophets, and the writings, now what you're saying is there's no argument with this. (laughs) This is it. God's purpose was to save Gentiles as much as to be a servant to the Jews. And so he quotes this reality from the law, the prophets, and the writings. What's also interesting are the passages he quotes. When you read it on sort of a cursory reading, it seems like they're just repeating each other. That the Gentiles were to praise God. But look carefully. Take a look at, first of all, at verse 9. He says, therefore I will praise you, here's the key word, among the Gentiles. I will sing hymns to your name. The psalmist is saying, Gentiles are around, and I'm going to give praise to my God in their midst. They can watch me, praise God. I'll do this among them, but they're in a distance observing what I'm doing. But then look at the next passage taken from the law. Now he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Paul said in the first passage, he's going to do this among the Gentiles. But now he says, well, not just among the Gentiles. We're also going to do this with the Gentiles. They're going to join us in praising God. Before they could watch us praise God and realize their gods were no gods. But now they are spoken of as joining with the Jewish people in giving God praise. Take a look at the next passage. Then he quotes again from Psalm, what was it, 117, which is the shortest psalm in the Bible. And he says, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and sing praises to him, all you peoples. Now they can praise God without the Jews. He said, before I'm going to do it in front of the Gentiles, they could watch. Now I'll do it with the Gentiles. But now in 117 he says, praise the Lord the Gentiles. There's no Jews here at all. These are just Gentiles and nations praising God. But that's not all. Then he quotes from Psalm uh, Isaiah 11. Where he says, the root of Jesse, the descendant of Jesse. Of course, Jesse is the father of David. So he's referring to the Davidic dynasty. And he says, the root of Jesse will spring up. The Messiah will come. The king of Israel will come. One who will rise to rule over the nations. The Gentiles will hope in him. So first of all, we, we would praise God and the Gentiles could watch. Then they can join us. Now they can praise him on their own. But now in Isaiah 11, he is their king as much as he is Israel's king. And not only that, but because he is their king, that which the Gentiles never had hope, they now find their hope in him. And so Paul's whole point about unity is that there's diversity in unity. Unity is never uniformity. There are differences, and despite the differences, we're joined together. Why? Because this was God's purpose, for which Yeshua was a servant to the Jews to bring about. That both Jew and non-Jew would worship the God of Israel together and give Him praise and have hope in Him. Not just optimism, but the expectation that we are with Him, in Him, and will be joined to Him fully when we are in His presence for all of eternity. Now when you think about that, Yeshua was a servant. When Yeshua endured the insults of his enemies, when we think of the degree to which the Jewish Messiah went to bring the Gentile world into fellowship with him, he says, therefore, endure one another, persevere with one another, be in union with one another, and create this oneness among yourselves, that the Spirit of God has already placed you in. We are already in the body of Messiah. That's what the immersing work, the baptizing work of the Spirit of God is. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. That immersion by the Spirit places us in the body. It is now for us to maintain the unity of the body of Messiah that we are a part of. And thus Paul then prays, So may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him. For that is the key, that we place our faith and reliance upon him. The result is, we will overflow with hope. And this, energized by the very power of the Spirit of God himself, who dwells in our midst. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for bringing us into your body.